The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you and welcome to Civil War Talk History, Civil War Talk Radio. There we go. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. He was born in a log cabin and rose to become President of the United States. He saved the Union. He emancipated the slaves. He wrote the Gettysburg Address. He told funny stories. What's not to like about Abraham Lincoln? Well, plenty, it turns out, for some people. And John McKee Barr knows who they are. He's written Loathing Lincoln, an American tradition from the Civil War to the present. And he'll tell us about Abe's enemies tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the corner of the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, where the show comes from most weeks, not every week, but usually. And although it does come from East Carolina University's campus, it's not sponsored by the university, not speaking for the university. It's uh, entirely my own project. My guest will speak for himself likewise. That's how we do it here on Civil War Talk Radio week after week, uh, where we talk about the historical events of the 1860s. We're not here to talk about contemporary events like football games. Uh, Sometimes I do that at the beginning of the show. 
This week, we'll combine briefly history and football to point out that until last Saturday, no team in history had ever rung up 70 points on the University of North Carolina's football team. But that's what ECU's Pirates did. And I will say, shiver me timbers, they looked good doing it. Uh, Entering the national top 25 for the first time in seven years, it was a good football weekend here in Greenville. Not so much for my alma mater up in Ann Arbor. I think they played a game. We'll comment on that. Movement said back to the Civil War era, which is what we are, after all, here to talk about. Uh, it's a gray evening. Uh, the show for many years came was, was recorded during the day, and I'd tell you, bright sunny day as I now. It's evening, uh, 7 o'clock Eastern time, gray and cloudy here in Eastern North Carolina. If you are listening live, uh, and a few people are always doing that, feel free to go ahead and send an email during the show. We don't normally do callers, but uh, some shows are more topical than others. Tonight's certainly is. And if you have any questions you think should be asked, uh, feel free to send a message during the show. I keep a window open on the computer, and I can pass that question along. To keep track of who's going to be on the show while you have your computer open, you can always go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date, telling us who's going to be on the show next week and the week after and so on, and what books they've written, which you can then buy. Next week, for example, uh, Richard A. Sowers with a book called The Fishing Creek Confederacy, a story of Civil War draft resistance. It's about the North, not the South, but interesting topic. On October 8th, we'll have Keith Hardison, director of the NC Historic Sites Program for the state of North Carolina. On the 15th of October, Brigadier General Jack Mountcastle, retired United States Army, will join us. He's former head of military history for the Army and a leader of staff rides on Civil War battlefields. On the 22nd, it will be the opinionator from the New York Times, Jamie Malinowski, an author of the new book, Commander Will Cushing, Daredevil Hero of the Civil War. We'll finish the month of October with Bill Still, the founder of East Carolina's Maritime Studies Program, author of Iron Afloat. It's about the Confederate ironclads. He's written many other books in an illustrious career, and I've long tried to find time in his schedule to get him on the show, and that's going to happen. November will bring us uh, Caroline Janey from uh, Purdue. Her new book is Remembering the Civil War. We've got other people lined up for the weeks after that, uh, but I'll save those as we get closer and tell you them as we get there. In the meantime, stay uh, abreast of things on the website or on the Facebook page. And feel free to contribute to Civil War Talk Radio and our book fund through the PayPal donation button that's on the Impediments of War website. Always welcome to get your cash, which I use purely for my own venal purposes, which is not a charity. It's not tax deductible. I will not send you a receipt. I'll try to send you a thank you notice. Uh, But it is used to help us get the books that we Uh, talk about each week here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, this week's book uh, from the Louisiana State University Press is one with a dramatic cover, a large uh, full frontal 
photograph of President Lincoln and the title Loathing Lincoln, an American tradition from the Civil War to the present. Uh, the author is John McKee Barr. And John, are you there? John, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Well, it's good to have you. I think we last saw each other. Was it at the Lincoln Forum in Gettysburg? Uh, uh, I think it was in Richmond, Virginia. You came and spoke <clears throat> on your book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And we, we, I was doing some research at the Virginia Historical Society for this book at the time. So it was several right. years ago, either way. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if you have a, a speakerphone or anything. There's a little echo in your, your voice. Uh, if, if there's anything you can do differently, give that a try. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, back to your story. Uh, when you, you were working on this book, your dust jacket says uh, you teach at Lone Star College, Kingwood, and you speak very highly of it in the introduction. Uh, where is it, and, and what what's who goes there, and what do you teach? Well, it's a uh, it's a a community college in North Houston, Texas, and we have uh, six campuses across the North Houston area, uh, about 90,000 students total. And um, our campus here in Kingwood, which is, again, in North Houston, we're about as far north in Houston and still still being located in the city. Uh, you know, we serve a population of about 11 different high schools and uh, just also, some some great students from all over the North Houston area, war veterans, uh, people going back to school for one reason or another types. So it's a it's a great place to work. Uh, it, it's the, the the face of higher education is changing. I've heard it said, and and I so it must be true. Therefore, uh, in our state system here, the University of North Carolina state system, half of the students in the the four-year college system are now transfers from junior colleges or right. community colleges. That, that is really becoming the dominant uh, form now. So it's a new world. Right, it is. And I think that, I, I don't know the exact numbers, Jerry, but I can't imagine they're that much different here in Texas. Well, it, it's uh, important that people are, are getting the higher education one way or another, and uh, that's what you and I do. Is Lincoln a subject that you had have always been interested in? Tell, how did you get into writing about this topic? What, what's your background well, in that one, sense? Well, one, yes, Lincoln is somebody that I've always been interested in in one way or another. I, I think my certainly my, my mother and father were both interested in the Civil War, so that had an influence on me. Uh, and my mother actually was from Lexington, Kentucky, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln's hometown. So I, I think that, you know, probably had some influence. And then he's just an interesting character, uh, of course. So that interest, and I think a central character in American history. So that was important to me as a history uh, teacher in the public schools, uh, even before I became a professor. Uh, and then I got working on the book really as part of my graduate education as a dissertation uh, at the University of Houston under Eric Walther. Eric's written on the Fire Eaters and wrote an award-winning biography on William Landis Yancey a few years back. 
so um, that's how I got interested in it. So, uh, to start with the, the obvious question, who who doesn't like Abraham Lincoln? Well, that depends on what time of American history you're talking about. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that, that uh, I found uh, that was interesting to me, that, you know, you have different criticisms of the man that exist at different times in our nation's past, depending upon what I call the cultural anxieties of the era. Uh, although I do think there are some some similarities between uh, some of Lincoln's critics over time, I, I, I think that's uh, true. Maybe we can delve into that a little bit more as the show proceeds. Well, it, let's let's go chronologically then, as the book does, and, and talk about those who didn't like Lincoln when he was alive. I, normally, that's sort of routinely what we do on the show. This time, okay. I, I was a little bit hesitant just because this book in 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 my estimation gathers up speed as it moves downhill toward the present and i found the chapters on the uh confederacy and the post-war era interesting but the chapters on the last uh five decades just utterly fascinating because i really knew nothing about uh what you're writing about and i want to talk about those in detail but let's start let, let, let's work work our way forward. Uh, you, your first chapter, you talk about the Civil War era. I'm, obviously, Confederates don't like Lincoln, but they, they're not alone. No, and there's you know there's Northern Democrats called Copperheads that don't like him, uh, and really don't like him. They uh, are critical. I'm sure. I think you had William Blair on the show a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Critical of the arrest that he makes, critical of you know the suspension of habeas corpus, critical of the way the war is conducted, critical of the conduct of the war. Um, well, I just said that, I suppose. But you know, also too, I think one of the things that I get at in the initial chapter is I'm trying to, I was trying to kind of set up that some of the themes, some of the themes of what I call this anti-Lincoln tradition really do get laid down in the in the war years and uh, you know that he started the war at Fort Sumter uh, Jefferson Davis and other Confederates blaming him for that even though they you know fired the first shots um, so but I think also too there's this worry uh, <clears throat> about Lincoln that somehow he's going to usher in uh, racial equality in the country and so I think that's this issue of race is never, at least in the Civil War era, and to a large degree after the Civil War era, this issue of race is never very far from criticism of Abraham Lincoln. So, I mean, we see that in the war era, you cite things like the famous uh, miscegenation pamphlet, right. you know, shows him, uh, you know, claims that he's supporting race mixing, that right. his re-election will lead to this sort of thing. Uh, but you point out there are other things that, that cause people to be anti-Lincoln. One that I thought was particularly interesting is the hostility toward his background, toward right. his, his parents. Uh, talk about that. Well, I, that, was, that was one of the things that I found very, very interesting as I did some research. Is in, 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 in the war years and then in the immediate aftermath of the war, and this is an example of how the criticisms of Lincoln change over time, um, but that many of his critics 
in the 1860s and 1870s and even in the 1880s, they referred to his background as vulgar and disgusting. And that word disgust came up a lot. I'm sure you ran across that in the book. And so it just intrigued me to think about, well, what's going on here that they're all using this similar language to describe this man? And um, I think that this is something that it's it's more than just... um, it's more than just hurling an epithet at Lincoln. And it was really, I got an idea from reading Jonathan Haidt's book on uh, why politics or how people get d- divided by politics, good people, the righteous mind, that was the name of the book. Mm-hmm. And how he said in that book that disgust is a particular form of conservative morality. And that really, for me, it, it kind of linked it that, these people that are opposing him in the 1860s and 1870s and, and later, they really are disgusted by his background. They see it as base. They see it as vulgar. And it's connected to a political philosophy uh, that's largely conservative in nature. And that's not to say that all conservatives uh, are anti-Lincoln, but I think a, a good number of them are, at least in that era. So whereas we today... Uh, wouldn't criticize Lincoln's background. I think most Americans, even you know, most conservatives, would celebrate Lincoln's background and his rise from obscurity uh, to become a successful lawyer, politician, and later president. Uh, that wasn't true in the 1860s and 1870s, and so I think his very background, his story, in a sense, was a threat to um, this what other writers uh, have called maybe this vertical view of life or hierarchical view of life, that there's a place for everybody and that, you know, the better people should rule. And in the view of Southern slaveholders, certainly Lincoln wasn't one of the better people and had no right to rule. So uh, that's kind of, well, that is what I was getting at with that, that point of the first chapter. That. Yeah, I, I had noted that. I, I, I see the word disgust here in my notes uh, to ask you about, because that really does stand out in, in the kind of language that they use. You point out that Lincoln's supporters point to his humble background. You quote uh, Albion Tourget calls him the great uncouth. Right, uh, right. It's okay to be uh, – uh, you know, there, there are many people in the North who celebrate this sort of rising from humble origins, but to – somebody of a, a traditional cast of mind who values a hierarchical society and ordered uh, traditional uh, society based on birth, uh, yeah, Lincoln is just, just doesn't have any place in the drawing room with someone like Robert E. Lee. Right, um, and I think that also, too, that's kind of connected. That's where the racial aspect came in because his back, his very story is kind of a, is kind of a threat, but then when you connect that to this political party that he leads, and we we can't ever really quite separate, nor should we separate Lincoln from the from the Republican Party. And here's a party that's talking about <clears throat> the the end of slavery in America. You know, Lincoln uses that phrase, the ultimate extinction of slavery. Uh, I think it was Owen Lovejoy thought it would you know maybe end in 25 years or so, but you know, so you have this guy of a different background that's rising up, and yet at the same time there's this talk about the eventual end of slavery. So what does that do to our hierarchies? And that's why I think there is a connection 
however tenuous it might be, but I do think it's there between his personal story and opposition to him, and then also this this fear of racial equality. Um, I, I don't think that. I mean, I think certainly the people that are talking about sure. racial equality and trying to pin that on Lincoln, there's certainly some hyperbole there. They're certainly they're trying to scare people. But so what? We're going to step not. in. Let me step in, and we're going to take a short break now oh, and come okay. back and, and pursue this point. Um, we are talking today with John McKee Barr about loathing Lincoln, an American tradition from the Civil War to the present. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with John McKee Barr. He's the author of Loathing Lincoln an American tradition from the Civil War to the present. We've been talking about uh, some of the origins of the anti-Lincoln tradition, why people hated Lincoln in his own time, uh, not just for the obvious reasons, uh, political reasons, that Confederates might hate their uh, opposing leader, but uh, we touched on the the element of, of disgust with Lincoln's background, uh, that he represented a, a new kind of leadership coming from humble origins. Uh, John, another thing you, you touch on in the early chapters is Lincoln's religion or lack of it as a source for anti-Lincoln animus. Uh, and I thought it was interesting you point out there's there's a contradiction between those who uh, argue that Lincoln was a, a, a 
was not religious and those who argue that he he was religious and he would have upheld the uh, the south as a forgiving christian had he not been assassinated he would have repudiated all the uh, attempts at black uh, voting and freedom that the the congress brought about right so, so uh, tell us about that well i mean the question of his religious beliefs has uh, that has you know and the and what he would have done had he lived that's kind of bedeviled historians for a long time, right? Uh, it, uh, and it really kind of, in a way, starts with his law partner, Billy Herndon. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of Lincoln's assassination, there are people talking about Lincoln as this model Christian, and uh, Herndon just couldn't countenance that and uh, argued that, no, Lincoln had no use for, what was it he said in his autobiography, Lincoln had no use for say-sos or, you know, or uh, faith or anything like that, and uh, so right. I mean, there there, there were Southerners, uh, white Southerners, after the war that said that you know Lincoln was a Lincoln was what they called an infidel. Uh, he was somebody that he he wasn't a Christian, and that his war, the war he uh, waged, was conducted in an unchristian manner. Uh, so that was certainly a. Uh, a criticism leveled, as you know, I talk about in Chapter 2 by Albert Taylor Bledsoe after the war, a former friend of, of Lincoln's in, in Whig politics in Illinois. And, and then certainly, you know, I think there's an element of, uh, I don't know, wishful thinking uh, into thinking that, that Lincoln would have been easier on the South had he lived. Uh, I know that's a controversial uh, topic, uh, but... You know, he was a Republican, and he would have—I don't—you know—he would have worked with Republicans to, to I think, do the same things that were done in a way. Now, I'm not sure how much difference that would have made. He would have been out of office by 1869, and you know, with the nature of Southern white Southern resistance to uh, the Reconstruction program, I'm not sure much would have changed. The uh, opposition to Lincoln that you describe in the 19th century is fairly straightforward, uh, but things get more complex as we get toward the 20th century in particular. Right. Uh, uh, the interaction of, of Lincoln and the imperial movement, the Spanish-American War, the acquisition of the Philippines, America's growth as a, a world power, do people, do they, are people blaming Lincoln for that? Are they sure. in, invoking him? How does that work? Well, you know, and actually you get it very early on where uh, I quote a letter in, uh, in this, I ran across this when I was researching at the Virginia Historical Society, a letter from uh, Lord Acton to Robert E. Lee in the immediate aftermath of the war, and Lee in as early as 1866, he is saying that the United States, now that it's a unified country, it's going to be, uh, you know, despotic abroad. And um, I think, uh, so when the United States starts annexing other countries in uh, 18, the 1890s and then goes to war in 1898 with Spain and acquires this overseas empire, uh, people kind of... Uh, look at that letter from Lee to Acton uh, later on in a pretty different light. And so, I, you know, I quote this uh, Charles Minor that wrote the book The Real Lincoln in the early part of the century, uh, you know, talking about the Union as a great braggart swollen with insufferable pride. Um, 
you know, and so yeah, I mean, there, it, he's kind of seen as the first imperialist because, from the perspective of his critics, he invaded the South, you know, and made them stay in the Union when they should have had the right to leave. He, you know, he coerced them. He emancipated slaves, they said, but he enslaved free men. Now, at the same time, when we look at the Spanish-American War, John Hay, Lincoln's old secretary, mm-hmm. the, you know, in, in, in the government is, is making this happen uh, as, as Secretary of State. So how do we get um, – so, so the people are invoking Lincoln on both sides. Sure. And that's Hay, all, that's, sure. That's, all, that's always true. And, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the premises, really, of the book. And even Lincoln's critics say that, that what we think about Lincoln is really vital to who we are as a people. And I thought that, I, I mean, I think that's really kind of true, uh, that what we think about Lincoln, I think even Lerone Bennett uh, has said, you know, what we invest in Lincoln is, tells us a lot about who we are as a people. And uh, and I think Eric Foner has said, you know, he's a lens through which we examine ourselves. So you're exactly right. There's this argument over his image. Uh, there's pro-Lincoln people who are also pro-imperialist. Uh, and then there's a, the anti-Lincoln people that, you know, that uh, many of them are anti-imperialist, although those categories uh, sometimes uh, are a little bit fuzzy, if you will. I mean, some anti-imperialists were... Uh, anti-Lincoln for racial reasons. Yeah, if there's one thing this book illustrates, it's the impossibility of applying contemporary categories to historical people and saying, oh, that's, I would have been exactly like all those people. Uh, yeah. The views are so mixed, it's very hard to, to do that. Um, you mentioned Lerone Bennett, who is famous for his book, uh, Forced into Glory, Abraham Lincoln's White Dream. Uh, from year 2000, but in the era we're talking about here, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, you quote W.E.B. Du Bois and his anti-Lincoln views, uh, which moderate over time, but uh, uh, is this the beginning of African-American skepticism about Lincoln in, in this era? Yeah, I, I think it is, and I, and, and I make the point in the book that I, and I think it it might be, I'd be interested to know what you think about this, but I, I don't really think it rises to the level of loathing. Uh, I think that what you see from Du Bois, and I, I do quote one uh, black radical associated with Mar- Marcus Garvey named Hubert Harrison. Um, yeah, they're critical of Lincoln, but it's really, it stems from disappointment with the way the war turned out. The, you know, that the war and reconstruction I'm, when i say war i mean the reconstruction era as well but that you know these egalitarian promises of the war they really just haven't been fulfilled because what's happening to african americans from the 1890s onward is they're being forced into second class citizenship with the, you know the complicity of the country and then that also means they're subject to lynchings across the country as well and so there's this real disappointment that, you know, we're really not emancipated like the war seemed like it would emancipate us, and, and as we had hoped to emancipate ourselves. And so there's this disappointment. But I don't, I don't think it's loathing. I mean, Du Bois called Lincoln the greatest figure of the 19th century. 
uh, even Hubert Harrison, who was scathingly critical of the United States, he said, look, you know, he is the greatest president the United States has ever had. You don't really hear that kind of language from some of his uh, diehard Confederate critics. Uh, it is it is different. And it, as a colleague told me once after reading the book, uh, she said that, you know, there's a big difference between telling your your child you're disappointed in them and telling your child that you loathe them. It, it is it is very different, and even yeah. Bennett, who who is very uh, harsh on Lincoln, uh, it, it simply just you know has the same goals in mind. He, he criticizes Lincoln for not going far enough, as opposed right. to critics who oppose everything that they believe Lincoln stands for. Uh, if we talk about anti-Lincoln writers, the the number one name that, that comes to mind certainly before uh, very recent times for, for a lot of scholars would be uh, uh, Edgar Lee Masters uh, mm-hmm. Lincoln the Man The uh, it was what the late 20s he wrote that early 30s uh, early 30s 1931 right uh, here's this Illinois poet who should be like Carl Sandburg writing a hero worshipping biography why does Masters hate Lincoln so much? Well, he th- I think part of it was he thought that, that you know, uh, uh, he thought that Masters had kind of usurped his ground in a way. And then, I mean, not Masters, that Sandberg, Sandberg had usurped right. his ground. I apologize. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think there's that element. But I also think there's a, he's kind of writing out of this limited government Jeffersonian tradition, if you will. Uh, and he's also anti-imperialist as well and he he even says at one book in the one point in the book that the re- imperialism of mckinley and the republicans in the 1890s is no different than the imperialism of of lincoln and the republicans there's no difference between them and if you read that book there's a there's a great deal of uh, just it's it's kind of a strange book in a way but uh he's just it almost throws everything he can, the entire kitchen sink, at Abraham Lincoln. Um, and he's named Edgar Lee Masters. He named after his father, named him after Robert E. Lee. So I think there's a lot of different elements at work there when he writes this book. And, you know, he got all sorts of uh, criticism for writing uh, Lincoln the Man, but he got a lot of, and I quote him in the book as well, There, he got a lot of praise from all over the country for what he had done, thanking him. I read a lot of letters saying thank you for doing this. So by 1930, then, by the early 30s, we have people, it's not just a phenomenon of the former Confederacy, but people no. throughout the country. Um, this is also the age of the, the agrarians, the, the right. southern writers who... Uh, you know, write their manifesto, I'll take my stand, that is explicitly anti-modern, that is trying to uh, you know, resist the forces of the, the early 20th century. And, you know, Lincoln, who's, who's a log cabin boy, is becomes for them the, the, the poster child of, of modernism. Yeah. How, how does that happen? Well... That's that you know that's very complicated, isn't it? I think that you know part of it is I think it's a, the view of this anti-Lincoln 
these anti-Lincoln writers is kind of nostalgic in a way. And so they're yearning for a past that really never quite existed. Uh, but the United States is also going through these massive changes in the 1920s and 1930s. It's becoming uh, more urban, less rural. Uh, you know, there's new scientific developments. Um, and I think that, you know, people look at that, these developments, they're not comfortable with them. And so they nostalgically look back to a different era and groups like the United Dodgers of the Confederacy and even, you know, Edgar Lee Masters, they have this nostalgic view that the Union was once one way and now it's this way and Lincoln's the cause of that. I found a wonderful quote by an African-American poet, Sterling Brown, where in the journal of what was called at the time Negro History in 1930, he, he, he says, uh, I love this quote, Today the tradition of glorifying the South gains momentum. Certain evils of modern life furnish the impulse to an easy romantic escape in dreams of a pleasanter past. And so I think it's this, uh, you know, part of it is an uncomfortable being uncomfortable with modernity uh, and looking for uh, some type of, you know, better time in American history. And you see this, I mean, you see this today, kind of with our worship of the founders in a way. Uh, I think there's an element of that that you see. So people looking for, uh, and I guess that happens to anyone who studies history or it's a temptation that leads to uh, imagine the past as a simpler Right. Easier, better right. time. Right, a simpler time. And then, of course, you know, Lincoln's really popular in, in, in the 1920s and 1930s. I mean, you know, Bruce Barton is equating him with the figure of Jesus in, the, in his book, The Man Nobody Knows. And, and that's a big bestseller in the country. And so that just enrages some of these people that don't like Lincoln, that this equation of what they call this infidel with, you know, uh, Christ. And so... Uh, that's a, that's a, I think another motivating, you know, they equate him with modernity. Uh, and of course, then you have the public schools are coming into, uh, America at this time and, and where you have a, a, a common curriculum, whether, where, whereas in the past education had largely taken place in the home. Well, now it's, you know, now the state is taking a role. And when the state takes a role, uh, the view of Lincoln is going to be mostly positive and, in what's taught in schools, and that's not something that Lincoln's opponents, certainly not in the old states of the Confederacy, want at all. They want a different version of the past taught. And and as you describe in the book, they fight for that. Uh, they fight over textbooks and other things. Well, one of the things... They still do. You know, and, and they still do, absolutely. And, yeah. and we'll, we're going to take a break in just a moment, come back and talk about uh, bringing the story down to the present. Uh, up to this point... All the opponents of Lincoln we've talked about can be classified as conservative in the literal sense of wanting a, a past uh, state to be either preserved or brought back even. But we'll see after the Second World War, the American conservative movement divides over how to think of Lincoln. Sure. Very uh, exciting that, story. It's, it's a story that's not perhaps as widely known as, as uh, others. I certainly learned a lot from it. And we'll talk about that uh, with our guest, John McKee Barr, author of Loathing Lincoln, 
an American tradition from the Civil War to the present when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with... John McKee Barr, author of Loathing Lincoln, an American tradition from the Civil War to the present. We've been talking about uh, anti-Lincoln writers since the Civil War era. Uh, The part of the book that really grabbed me, because I knew the least about it, was the divide in American conservative thinking uh, after the Second World War between the end of the war and and roughly 1980. you describe different strands of conservative thought. Some are strongly pro-Lincoln, and some are strongly anti-Lincoln. Uh, can you can talk about that? Well, I think that uh, it really kind of begins, in a way, in 1959. Well, let me back just to backtrack for a second. I think in the post 1945 era, the post World War II era, you do have develop a conscious conservative movement, and you know you're just not going to win political power if you're going to go out around attacking Abraham Lincoln. That's not something that's going to do you a whole lot of good. Mm-hmm. But I think that this, uh, at least politically, at least I don't think so, and in 1959, Harry Jaffa, a political philosopher, uh, publishes, I think, one of the most important Lincoln books that's ever been published, if not <laughs> the most important in terms of its influence. But it's called Crisis of the House Divided, and it's an analysis of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And Jaffa gives a uh, an account of Lincoln in that book that 
he really portrays Lincoln as a philosopher statesman, and and the view of Lincoln in that book is really, in my view, very very positive. And he also says that the Civil War wasn't a war that people, that American politicians blundered into, that actually there were some very real issues at stake uh, in, in terms of what the future American nation was going to be like, and that Lincoln was on the right side of those issues. Well, this provokes a debate within the conservative community, and especially within William F. Buckley uh, Jr.'s National Review magazine, and so Jaffa and Frank Meyer, uh, most specifically, and Frank Meyer was a uh, very important writer at Buckley's National Review magazine, more really of a libertarian slant, and he uh, is very critical of Jaffa's viewpoint of Lincoln, and and they conduct these these arguments within National Review magazine. and then, of course, M.E. Bradford, Mel Bradford, a Texan, uh, also begins uh, attacking Abraham Lincoln in the early 70s and then throughout the 70s. And he and Jaffa really c- conduct a, an argument in the pages of various journals about Lincoln as well. And so all this really kind of culminates in 1981 <clears throat> when uh, Bradford is nominated to the National Endowment, to chair the National Endowment of the Humanities by President Reagan. And... Um, Jaffa supports him for the post. Uh, Bradford was a an accomplished literary scholar, especially of, of William Faulkner. Uh, but there are other conservatives within the conservative movement, what some people today would call neoconservatives, or what they were called at the time, too. They object to the uh, nomination of Bradford, and in part because he had had some sharply critical things to say about Lincoln in these essays. And uh, so Reagan uh, withdrew the nomination and gave it to Bill Bennett instead, and uh, or it went to Bill Bennett instead. And uh, this really kind of split the conservative movement between these neoconservatives and uh, paleoconservatives. So, yeah, this argument over Lincoln really, in, in a way, criticism of Lincoln in the conservative movement, it, it kind of temporarily, uh, it never entirely goes away, but it kind of temporarily gets submerged, I think. After 1981, the... the, Yeah, yeah, or it might take a little longer than that. I I think I kind of date it to when Bradford refuses to write any more for for National Review magazine. Uh, I think he sent in a review that was critical of James McPherson's The Second American Revolution, and I don't think that National Review ran that review and uh, of McPherson's book. And he withdrew uh, writing for the magazine in 1991, 92, something like that. And that's about the same time the Soviet Union breaks apart. And so, uh, yeah, it really kind of, uh, it takes a little while, but it kind of goes underground in a way. And they begin to write, these critics begin to write for other venues. Well, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the the widespread cheering in the United States for the secession of the Soviet republics, uh, that causes, you know, really a widespread reevaluation of the Civil War and the uh, justice or legitimacy of secession. If it's good for uh, the Republic of Georgia, why isn't it good for the state of Georgia? One, one might argue. Yeah. So people are now discussing it again, and we get a new wave of anti-Lincoln criticism, uh, in starting in the 90s, but not abating to this day. Uh, that is on a different basis. The the, the old conservatives, uh, the paleo conservatives you talk about, some were explicitly anti-equality. They they simply said no, no, 
people are not equal, and Lincoln's wrong, and uh, uh, right. you know, Jaffa Jeff strongly disagrees. Says equality uh, should right. be a conservative, should be a human value. Right. The new argument is not based on equality. What's the basis of the new criticism of Lincoln? Well, uh, I think that probably the founder of this is this is the uh, economist Murray Rothbard. He's a very uh, uh, influential figure, and I think it really it's it 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 has some it meshes in some ways with previous Lincoln criticism. I mean, it never, none of these things ever entirely go away, but. Mm-hmm. You know, Rothbard, who is really kind of an what he called an anarcho-capitalist, uh, he's really writing in the tradition of, or at least they, they, they claim to be writing in the tradition of Lysander Spooner, who was a 19th century American that had argued uh, that the war had been unjust and criminally conducted uh, by the Lincoln administration, and that it hadn't been uh, fought for uh, ending slavery, but for, you know, crass purposes. Uh, and so at any rate, these libertarians or anarcho-capitalists uh, in the Rothbardian vein of criticism, they believe that secession is something that uh, is not just constitutional, but it's also moral that you shouldn't be coerced uh, into remaining in a union that you don't want to remain in. And they would, I think, say that secession is something that uh, should be an unconditional right, that by allowing states to secede or the prospect of secession, then the central governments, they would argue, have to pay more attention to them uh, and, and their concerns. And they argue that secession would have aided the anti-slavery cause because northerners wouldn't have had to return fugitive slaves anymore. Uh, so their argument, and it is an old argument, is also that the war really was never about ending slavery, but it was about tariff collections. Uh, that sort of thing, and that you know that the war uh, was unnecessary, they would argue, because uh, slavery was an economically inefficient institution. Market forces would have caused it to wither away, and so the war was unnecessary. And other countries, like Great Britain, they argue, would have uh, would have abolished the would have they abolished slavery peacefully. Why couldn't the United States? Uh, and so their viewpoint is that the war. Uh, could have uh, been avoided entirely. And what Lincoln's agenda was, they're saying, was not ending slavery or preserving the Union, but centralizing government in Washington, D.C. And this meshes very nicely with an anti-government ethos, if you will, or political philosophy. Uh, And today you see that mostly uh, in conservative circles. And it has reemerged into conservative circles, I think, publicly. This, uh, as I'm reading this, I, I realize for the first time I get this uncomfortable feeling. I'm, I'm not reading about history anymore. I'm part of it. Uh, yeah. I, I see names of other historians I know, and in uh, uh, my own name, uh, in a place or two. In uh, in 2004, in North and South Magazine, uh, Thomas De Lorenzo, who you you cited as the author of The Real Lincoln, one of the, the leading uh, speakers on behalf of this libertarian anti-Lincoln view. Uh, he and I wrote a, had an exchange called Abraham Lincoln, Savior or Tyrant in the pages of North and South uh, magazine, 
which I recall being very reluctant to enter into because I thought I was giving credibility to what I thought was was really a crackpot argument um, mm-hmm. by by engaging it. But I'm, I'm, as I read your book, I realize uh, I was far too small to uh, add or detract from this movement. Uh, this is a powerful anti-Lincoln movement, and uh, uh, while historically it's not very well grounded, uh, politically this argument seems to have legs. Oh yeah, sure. I think it's uh, I think it's a very influential movement. Uh, certainly more influential than it was, you know, 20 years ago, and. Uh, I mean, I, this is just anecdotal, but I mean, every time I go into a bookstore, just and it doesn't matter where it is, I'll go into the biography section, and invariably, De Lorenzo's book is on the shelves. You know, it, sitting next to uh, you know maybe a book by McPherson or David Donalds or you know Michael Burlingame's book or you know any any number of Lincoln books, his is invariably there, and it's it's I think. And I encounter it in my classes from time to time. I don't know if – do you ever mm-hmm. encounter the arguments in your classes? Uh, uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Not, not always uh, – is not not necessarily learned from these books, more often learned uh, at home, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, but the tradition, the anti-Lincoln tradition is there. Well, let me point out what, what also fascinated me is that as uh, these, these – uh, Initially, radical conservatives, uh, you know, in some ways, forebears of the Tea Party argument are are arguing against Lincoln. You also cite a strong conservative pro-Lincoln uh, position yeah. uh, from people like Alan Gelzo, uh, sure. Lucas Morale, uh, uh, Tim Sandifer, and others. So it's it's still an open question who whose vision of Lincoln. Not just among Americans generally, but even within the conservative movement, it's still uh, it's still up for grabs. Yeah, I think so. Or conservative and libertarian. I'd maybe make that distinction. Mm-hmm. I'm yes. not sure that uh, De Lorenzo would classify himself as a conservative. Uh, he would probably call himself more an anarcho-capitalist or a libertarian. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and I, it was one of the ironies of the. Uh, it's one of the rich ironies of Lincoln literature, and it was the political philosopher uh, Larry Arnhart that pointed it out to me that, uh, you know, that some of the best defenses of Lincoln have come from conservatives. And I think that you see that because conservatives and libertarians know that it's within their movement, more or less, that this huge argument is taking place. I just don't. I just don't sense that it's as it, that it is as important on the left uh, wing of, of of our political spectrum as it is on on the right wing. I, I, well, that's just my sense of it. I mean, not to say that there's not critics of Lincoln on the left. There are, but um, I think it was Corey Robin, the political theorist, uh, author of the Reactionary Mind, that he said he thought the view of Lincoln on the left was what he called ambivalently positive. Um, which I think that's a fairly accurate representation, at least from my understanding of things. A little bit different on the right. It's certainly more a mainstream view. You do have critics uh, to the left, going back to the Du Bois tradition, uh, Laurent Bennett and others who who criticize Lincoln for not moving far enough or fast enough or for transcending the racism of his era. Right. Uh, But you, you, you... 
made the point earlier in our, our talk, the difference between being disappointed and someone and loathing them. Uh, if you if, if you don't loathe Lincoln, then either the Civil War was uh, acceptable as a projection of federal power, uh, or the South was wrong in its defense of slavery, or both. And uh, most mainstream Americans would say, well, yeah, those are both true. The, the war was justified right. and, and slavery was wrong. Uh, and so if you're going to get around those, you have to start by rejecting Abraham Lincoln uh, and then, then make your case from there. And that's certainly a challenge for those uh, uh, who don't like Lincoln. Well, we're very near the end of our time. Uh, let me who, – who's – what was the most surprising thing you found uh, in researching this? Well, I think, one, just how de- deep and rich the tradition was, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and uh, so that surprised me, and how there were these connections over time uh, between these groups, uh, the hatred for the background, the, the hatred for the use of federal power, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I was, I don't think that, you know, I don't think you can ever get away from this issue of Lincoln and race, even with his critics. And, and so I think that surprised me a little bit. And then this is just a personal, this is a personal view, but I, I, I think I was, I became more and more impressed with the, I think the Republican Party was a little bit more radical than, maybe even a lot more radical than most Americans appreciate in the 1850s and 1860s. And, we're gonna, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop you with that thought because we've run out of time. Okay. Uh, but leave it to our readers, our listeners who will want to go out and read this book, Loathing Lincoln, an American tradition from the Civil War to the present. Uh, a fascinating uh, discussion of a, a topic that's never really been explored before. Uh, the author is our guest tonight, John McKee Barr. John, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And listeners, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. 